0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this
1: is Government Matters
0: Defense with Francis Rose.
1: Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The House Appropriations Committee's draft spending bill for the Defense Department includes a 2.7 percent pay raise for uniformed personnel. That matches what the Biden administration proposed in its budget request. Military Times reports that raise tracks with the government's formula for private sector wage growth. The House Appropriations Committee's draft bill restores the number one item on the Navy's unfunded requirements list. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday placed a second guided missile destroyer at the top of the service's wish list. Breaking Defense reports the bill cuts a logistics support ship to help fund the destroyer. The Navy will set a record of six deployed littoral combat ships by the end of this year. Two of the ships will go to the Western Pacific to meet the Tulsa and the Charleston later this year. Navy officials tell USNI News U.S. Southern Command will get two LCSs by December 2. The next phase of artificial intelligence is here for the Pentagon. The Defense Department's focusing on going to war with the data it has to build better models for national security missions. Angela Sheffield is Senior Program Manager for AI for the Defense Nuclear Nonproliferation Research and Development at the National Nuclear Security Administration. She's writing about AI and national security and C4ISRnet. Angela, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I I think that the uh, appropriation of the term you go to war with the force you have is especially apt here. What do you mean by that term when it comes to data in particular? Angela, welcome.
2: Absolutely. And thank you for having me. The key here is that often on artificial intelligence, um, we say that we need more data. We need better data. The truth is, is We have whatever data we have, especially in the national security space. If we find that we don't have the right techniques, the right methods to build artificial intelligence with the data that we have, that doesn't mean that we should get better data. It means that we should develop better methods to build powerful, useful AI systems that work with the data that we already have.
1: You write in this piece that your office is advancing the state-of-the-art in AI to fulfill requirements for robust, ethical, and secure models. Why did you choose those three adjectives to describe the work that you're doing, Angela?
2: Absolutely. The point of, of, of artificial intelligence, I mean, the, it's not about AI. It's about the national security missions. So the point is to build AI that that, that meets whatever the most important requirements are for the mission that we're executing for some missions, that is the ability to inform, to, to reveal really important insights then enable high consequence decisions, even under uncertainty. And metrics that define our ability to make those decisions, our robustness for those decisions, would be the right metrics that we use to evaluate whether that AI is effective. In other parts of national security, the most important aspects of our mission are the, the ethics that we bring to, to executing that mission. And so for, for those uses of artificial intelligence, we should define and evaluate the performance of artificial intelligence against, against metrics for ethics. Uh, again, the point is, not the AI. The point is that the mission it enables and evaluating and, and, and designing the AI to be suitable for those requirements.
1: Referencing mission enablement, Angela, you refer to the next generation AI portfolio a number of times in this piece what's the mission or what piece of the mission does that portfolio enable now? And what do you anticipate that portfolio enabling in the future?
2: At the National Nuclear Security Administration, leveraging the expertise of the Department of Energy National Laboratories and working with, with partners in the Department of Defense and the intelligence community and across the national security enterprise, we are developing advancing the science of AI to develop AI power capabilities that enhance the United States' capability to detect nuclear weapons development around the globe, to to, to detect and monitor illicit activities to build or strengthen nuclear weapons programs. That's our primary focus. But nuclear proliferation detection, um, the missions of nuclear nonproliferation and arms control are diverse and super challenging. And within those missions are are representations of many of the diverse missions across the national security enterprise. So most immediately, our work is improving, again, mission capability in this area of nuclear nonproliferation, reducing the threat of nuclear weapons around the globe. But longer term, we we recognize and want to share and leverage the opportunity to leverage the, the methods and capabilities we're developing more broadly across the national security enterprise.
1: I understand if you have to answer this question in very, very broad strokes uh, for whatever reason, what are you doing today with AI that maybe you were not able to or not able to do to the extent that you were two years ago? And what do you see on the horizon to be able to do in the future that maybe you can't do or can't do as much of as you'd like to today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So kind of piggybacking on, on what we said earlier that or, or, or this concept of good data, we have AI right now to find patterns, a really powerful AI, to find patterns in large data sets, particularly large data sets of image or video data or text-based data. Some of the most interesting work we're doing right now, some of the most interesting research we're accomplishing right now is to build methods and techniques that allow us to still um, Uh, to to still use AI, to still build useful AI, but for other data types besides images and text, sensor and measurement data that are key to enabling many national security missions, and also uh, methods that are suitable when our data is far sparser than what we're used to seeing like on the internet when you're used to seeing artificial intelligence, working with data when the data is really messy or biased. Um, And instead of working to make that data more boring so that we can leverage conventional techniques that are developed for really boring data sets, finding ways to incorporate the information that makes national security missions so interesting and so important.
1: Um, you write uh, regarding the mission that we talked about a moment ago, the United States national security enterprise must integrate AI to win in competition and conflict with China, Russia, and emerging threats. Must obviously is not an optional word. What has to happen in order Uh, for the United States national security enterprise to maintain the lead that many people believe it has now?
2: Absolutely. We are a nation in competition right now and we have to leverage artificial intelligence to win in competition with Russia and China and remain responsive to emerging threats. The artificial intelligence we need the artificial intelligence that, that we will use for national securities to maintain this leadership and, and to remain responsive to emerging threats and in times of, of conflict or crisis, the artificial intelligence we need is as much science fiction right now as it is actual science. We're at an inflection point. Will artificial intelligence just be pattern matching and cat videos? Or will we realize that artificial intelligence that we're all hoping for that, is, that feels very much like science fiction. To develop the methods and techniques to realize that, that science fiction feeling artificial intelligence takes creativity and determination. The same creativity and determination that have long underpinned American innovation. And NSA, an working with the Department of Energy National Laboratories and research partners in academia and industry are driving advances in the science of artificial intelligence innovations in AI to realize this science fiction feeling artificial intelligence to make it a reality, the sort of artificial intelligence that it takes to leverage AI for national security missions and the sort of artificial intelligence it will take to win in this competition.
1: Angela Sheffield, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You can find a link to Angela's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the Navy's 355 ship plan It might be 320, it might be 370, and it might be hundreds more. Straight ahead on Government Matters, explaining the changes to the Navy's plan. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Navy's new shipbuilding plan steps back a bit from the force's 355-ship fleet strategy. The new plan calls for anywhere from 320 to about 370 manned ships. Brian Clark, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, he's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commanders Action Group. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. More numbers floating around here than I ever anticipated regarding the Navy fleet. What do you see in the new shipbuilding strategy?
3: Uh, well thanks for having me on francis it's great having these talks over the years uh today the the navy's strategy has changed once again to drive down to a lower number of ships uh, overall It seems, uh, but with a very wide target as you noted um, a couple of the major things that jump out of the shipbuilding plan is a significant reduction in the number of surface combatants that they're planning to have in the future uh, from about 130 in the today's fleet down to about 100 uh, in the future fleet uh, also they're going to keep the number of submarines rising uh, over the course of the next 20 to 30 years um, so, going from about 55 ships a day up to about 66 ships out in the future. Um, so, they're going to prioritize undersea as, a, as an element of their new strategy. Carriers actually fared okay, uh, with the number being between nine and eleven. Which uh, today the number is uh, ten, and if you count the Ford when it's finally going to deploy, then then we could get back up to eleven. Uh, so that, that that number is is about the same. So it seems like the the strategy of the Navy is to stick with um, the the kind of the platforms that got them here, the carriers and the submarines. Uh, and then use the surface combatants to support them. Uh, And then the other elements of the fleet, the unmanned part of the fleet will grow uh, to try to improve the ability of the fleet to get the persistence and the coverage that it would otherwise have had with manned platforms.
1: There's a chicken and egg problem here though, Brian, and actually it goes three ways. Instead of just chicken and egg, we have some other factor we have to figure out how to throw in there because we have this shipbuilding strategy that is now different, I think, than both what Congress has indicated is willing to fund and the national defense strategy. How does one reconcile all three of those things to figure out, as you said, this, we've changed it again?
3: Right, right. And so what's interesting is there really is a strategy to back up this change in the overall force architecture. So we did the Battle Force 2045 or the future naval force structure study last year. We did that based on a certain assumption about the national defense strategy being in place and a way of war fighting that was gonna focus on deterring China through denial, essentially. Um, this new shipbuilding plan and the reduction of numbers doesn't seem to align with that approach uh, because you are reducing the number of surface combatants significantly and, and the number of unmanned platforms from what we had in that previous, uh, at that previous plan from last year. Um, so it's unclear what the strategy is. That this, this fleet is probably not going to be able to support the national defense strategy as written today. Um, so that the new national defense strategy will have to somehow provide an articulation of how this fleet's going to operate. Um, And it seems like a lot of what they're going to focus on is using undersea in order to create uncertainty for China as a way of deterring China rather than showing China the ability to uh, defeat them outright. So it seems like it's a a shift from a more kind of hard attrition-focused strategy, if you will down to something that's focused more on uh, creating uncertainty and impacting Chinese decision-making.
1: One of the things that I love about having you on this program is you take me where I want to go before I can even ask you to take me there. (laughs) What does this say, then, about what we can expect to see in a Biden administration national defense strategy?
3: Yeah, so I think you're going to see some of this, I don't want to say reverse engineering, to support the force structure that they can afford. Uh, But by establishing the top line where they have, they've essentially set a limit on how big the military can be and even with the Navy getting a lot uh, a larger share of the overall budget you can see the Navy is still going to shrink uh, relative to where it was expecting to be and even where it is today in some ways. Um, so the strategy is going to have to back up that and support it by articulating a way of, of, of fighting that's going to be more focused on uh, creating this uh, level of uncertainty and confusion and complexity for an opponent like China uh, and maybe not uh, creating the, uh, the, the ability to defeat them in a hardcore attrition battle. But instead, creating enough of a a threat or or enough of a a roadblock, if you will, that the Chinese will be dissuaded from uh, initiating an act of aggression. So it's going to be a a little bit more of a whole-of-government approach, perhaps, to create this uncertainty and threat for China, rather than strictly a military approach like the national defense strategy of the Trump administration did.
1: Megan Eckstein in Defense News writes this, Those 321 to 372 manned ships would be supplemented by a yet-to-be-determined number of unmanned surface and underwater vessels between 77 and 140. As a result, the Navy's total fleet could range from 398 manned and unmanned to 512. The the chicken and egg and some other thing analogy that I used a moment ago, though, leads with the money, it strikes me. You've always told me to watch the money. And the CNO said this this week, based on the top line that we have, we can afford a Navy of about 300 ships. Is all of this discussion moot right now, Brian, at the budget levels that we're at today?
3: Uh, yeah, some of this discussion is moot. So I think, you know, the, the, the shipbuilding plan has, has in there a little nugget that says the Navy is going to constrain the size of the fleet. To align with what it can sustain down the road into the future uh, which means operations and support funding is going to be a constraint on the fle- fleet design which is something that we've been pushing for over at hudson uh, for a while um, which means you're going to constrain yourself to about 300, 320 ships because of the need to pay for the manpower the maintenance the fuel all those things that go along with keeping a fleet operating uh, so so i think on the manned side we're going to have that hard constraint and that opens up the potential for maybe on the unmanned side the navy can increase its capacity and make up for some of that shortfall on the man side by using unmanned platforms to get the the coverage i think it's a persistence or to get the reach that they would have otherwise gotten by building new platforms or building more of the existing platforms
1: brian clark thanks very much as always up next new r&d money coming for the pentagon straight ahead on government matters what might go out the window to pay for it you're watching wjla 24 7 news Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and other leaders are pushing Congress to allocate more money for research, development, and technology. But those leaders got lots of questions from authorizers this week about what they want to get rid of to pay for those investments. Mackenzie Eagland's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, it's good to see you again. How much of what you saw is the same stuff we've been talking about, you and I, for a decade or more, Congress wants to keep stuff that the military wants to get rid of. And how much of this looks different to you, Mackenzie?
4: Well, and also how much of this is the same from previous administration in the executive branch approach, right? So, you know, the growth in the R&D, the research and development budget has been the solution since the tail end of the Obama administration. And that's been continued now through to today. So I think Congress is getting increasingly antsy about the balance between research and development how that money is spent, and then, as you're pointing out, what happens to capacity, right? So what happens to tactical aircraft, for example, which is down 20, well, actually, aircraft purchases in general are down 20% in the Army and in the Navy and in the Air Force. So Congress is concerned about this balance, and just saying that we have, you know, record R&D spending is not a solution that's going to please them enough.
1: What fixes that? Is is it more money? Is it spending the money differently than maybe both Congress and the department think? W- what's, what's the gap? How do, how do we bridge that gap?
4: So a lot of the criticism that's coming out, the members are talking about more funds. Now I don't know if that will actually manifest. It certainly could. I'm not ruling it out. Uh, it's possible to get a, a bigger budget deal that you could cut this defense deal. Uh, but to buy more capacity, you know, as the services are proposing in their wish lists, you got to find more money or take it out of R&D. But Congress is already going to struggle uh, to change the research and development investments. Like they they understand there's more money for hypersonics, for example, this year, weapons. Uh, but they also want to talk more about artificial intelligence and how science and technology funding is being allocated and decide if they agree with the department. But to your point, like, so the bottom line, how do you actually get the two sides to agree? You have to pick winners and losers, Francis, in the research and development account and pull them forward as programs of record. You have to put them into production so that they can actually get into the hands of the people who are going to use it.
1: To the point of the projection of capability moving forward, I'm going to pick on the Army uh, with all due respect to our friends in the other services. Uh, The Army established its modernization priorities under the Trump administration, the Big Six. It is pushed and pushed and pushed in the Big Six. Has it done a decent enough job of demonstrating we are developing the new capabilities that we need for warfighting in the 2020s and the 2030s and beyond to build confidence in Congress that it should be able to proceed on that path? Or is some of the hesitancy just based on parochialism, do you think?
4: I do think that they've made a strong case, and not to mention the leadership of the Army is unified. They've taken programs. In fact, the Army's one of the few services lately, as in the last few years, that's been able to take a a revolutionary innovation and move it into the hands of war fighters. They actually skipped making it a program of record. They skipped a requirements document, for example. They used uh, special authorities. Um, these are their night, their special high tech night, new night vision goggles that uh, Microsoft coders helped develop in the field alongside soldiers. So the army has some examples, but they, I don't know that they've answered future vertical lift well enough. I think that's an ongoing question and the fact that, you know, they're, they're making the case that $1 change will upend all, all of the research and development and modernization. thats We know Congress is going to make changes. So then the question becomes, so will it all fall apart or. Uh, is it going to, you know, can the two get sides come to a solution? And then the last issue is just always end strength because the Army is as busy as ever. I know there's been some changes in the Middle East lately, but, you know, their biggest investment, their weapon system, highest spending is on their people. And Congress is, is, is worried as the Army leadership about that.
1: Is that the model, maybe, though, for the other services moving forward? And and they're doing similar things, but just to basically set about the mission of modernizing and developing new capabilities. And, I mean, it seems to me the Army Army has kind of dragged Congress along and and said, here's what we've got. And Congress goes, well, it's kind of hard to argue with the successes that they're having.
4: That's a fair point. I mean, they just barreled ahead as a service. And once they had something to show for it, Congress was mildly impressed. Um, I think it is a model for the other services. I would like, you know, I don't think it's perfectly applicable because not everything can avoid becoming a program of record. But what you can't do is research and develop to death, right? Basically, if a program's been in research or development for more than three years, it's probably a bust and you need to just cut bait. And move on and spend that money elsewhere. If if it's not moving into production or even procurement, program of record or not, it needs to move. You know, the Pentagon needs to move on. I think that's really where Congress has to hold the department accountable. The record R&D alone, again, it's just not. That's not going to cut it anymore. We need clear winners and losers now. And I get it. That's hard to do. Nobody wants to to be the adjudicator there, but they they're willing to make winners and losers of legacy systems. So I think now we need to apply that model to research and development.
1: Uh, 20 seconds, Mackenzie, what winners and losers do you anticipate seeing?
4: Well, that is a really good question. I mean, I, I support, I think Congress is supportive of all of the similar top priorities of the department. But for example, we've heard Air Force leadership say, you know, if we really want to compete with China in the near term, we need more quantum computing and other types of capabilities in that basket. And so I could see Congress, you know, looking at that, taking it to heart moving money around within the research and development budget to support that effort because I think members are waking up to that this is a really here and now problem that they have to address.
1: Mackenzie Eaglin, always great to talk to you. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it at govmatters.tv and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and eleven on WJLA 24/7 News, and Sunday mornings at 10:30 on Seven News. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
5: offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to
1: go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, If you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
5: Well, I think I think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry that you're asking for the right kind of services if you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to